not. And so uh, hear these words from Paul to the church in Ephesus. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, in his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat again. Okay, so some start, some seasonal context for those of you that haven't been with us. And if you are new or you're visiting, my name is Jonathan Miller. Uh, I'm one of the two co-lead pastors here at Mosaic alongside of Kyle who was leading worship. My wife was uh, leading us in worship as well. That's Anna. Uh, so grab one of us, say hello at the end of the service if you would. But if you are new and maybe you haven't been around or maybe you've been in and out, just as a way of reminder, we've been sitting in and kind of trying to hold on to this Easter season, this Easter tide. And Easter tide is 50 days. It's supposed to be bigger and better than Lent. Uh, Lent, we sit in for 40 days, uh, or 47 if you count the Sundays, from Ash Wednesday to Easter morning, 47 days. But we say uh, Sundays are for celebrating, Sundays are for feasting, so we don't count those. So Lent is for 40 days to mark the 40 days in the wilderness, the journey, the, the fasting of Jesus, uh, the 40 years that the people of God spent wandering outside of the promised land. And then Easter comes along and it's 50 days, and it's on purpose, it's intentional, the Lenten life, the Lenten lands, as we have called it around here, borrowing from C.S. Lewis, is a way in which we embrace what life as a believer on this side of eternity oftentimes can feel like and is. And yet we know, because of what Christ has done in his death and burial and resurrection, that we are able to feast. We're able to celebrate in a different kind of way. And so we have encouraged you during this time. And this is our seventh Sunday, including Easter Sunday. So we've been six weeks, and we've got a few more days left in this Easter season. And we've uh, implored you to try and celebrate, try and feast, do things differently around your home. Be mindful. There's rhythms of fasting and prayer and these other disciplines we have in our lives. And we've thought about how do you rethink that, reorient that, so that you can embrace this season of feasting, this season of celebration, and sustain it. Hold on to it. And we find it to be difficult a lot of times. And so there's this way in which it's a, a spiritual discipline and a spiritual practice of celebrating. And we want that to extend. We want to be reminded of and hold on to the power and the hope and the goodness and the, like, the truth of resurrection and what it means in this Easter season. But then also part of why it lasts for so long and part of what's going on is that there are other sort of uh, historical days that are at play from our New Testament narratives that were given from the Gospel and from Acts. 
And we see that there are these other moments that oftentimes in many of our church settings we forget about, that we didn't stop and celebrate or, or mark or remember in the same kind of way as we would something like Christmas, Good Friday, maybe Ash Wednesday, Easter, and we just sort of move on. But the New Testament and the early church fathers and the church for thousands of years has seemed to think that there are these other moments that happen that are just as important as the resurrection in and of itself. Like the resurrection is obviously the climax of the story in a lot of ways. And yet it is not complete according to scripture without things like the ascension and Pentecost. If Jesus was just resurrected and he was just, you know, brought back from the dead, his story would maybe be similar to something like Lazarus, right? In other texts and scriptures that we read about and stories we've heard about of people being raised from the dead. But the difference with Jesus is that his human life never saw death again. Like he defeated death. Lazarus was resurrected and ended up dying again. Jesus, not the case. This matters theologically. It matters kind of in the grand scheme of how we understand religion and who Jesus is and Christianity. But I think it has practical implications for us too. And so the church, parts of the church I should say, for a long time has said we should observe ascension, which is 40 days. You should see the themes here, right? 40 days. Jesus walks on earth post-resurrection. And we collectively here, we uh, say it together to begin our services on Sunday mornings, that we believe that this was a historical thing that happened. We believe in a real historical resurrection and a real historical Jesus that walks the earth, that was buried, was dead, was resurrected. And 40 days after his resurrection on Easter Sunday, would have been this past Thursday for those of you that are curious or maybe not uh, wanting to do the math in your head. We believe that there was a historical event that happened that Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father. And we say every Sunday that he ascended to the Father where he sits, will come to judge the living and the dead and his kingdom will have no end. That in some way, somehow, this thing that he inaugurated, his coronation moment on the cross, was continued and he continues to rule and to reign as king over all. There at the right hand of the Father. Now, in this very moment... We don't understand it all. It's confusing. I'll be the first to admit it. I have lots of questions. Uh, like I heard on a podcast that I was listening to this week, and I thought this was really funny because I feel like this is a childlike question. But they're like, you know, he's, he's human, Jesus. He can go through walls, and yet he eats fish. Um, he, you can touch his scars according to the gospel narratives, and yet he, you know, can kind of just like appear and disappear at will. So obviously there's something else going on, and he is Jesus, so, you know, I mean, he's got that going for him. He's existed for eternity's past and will exist for eternity's future. But in this human form, he ascends. And I'm like, you know, where did he go? Now in our modern minds, we know about stratosphere and atmosphere and where space is and oxygen and all of these things. And we're like, you know, did, did he have like a cosmic spacesuit? Like, I don't know. And I thought it was really funny to me. That, like, I've never thought of that, like, in that way, of the, this human form of Jesus. It, it, because the New Testament wants to double down on this idea that he is human in his bodily form. And this is part of why it's important to think about this. That that is what sits at the right hand of the Father. This is unique to religion. This is unique to the thought and understanding of the divine and spirituality in the history of humanity. That God himself would know our frame. 
that he's experienced it, and that he continues to somehow in himself hold that. That's the interesting part about who Jesus is. And this is why the ascension matters, theologically, philosophically, that it is in the human form that Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father. So this is where I do my really nerdy thing around the house that frustrates Anna. And we're talking to the boys about uh, salvation and Christ and Jesus and our lives and what it means to be a part of the kingdom. And she'll be like, Jesus like, lives in you. And I'm like, well, actually, I put my monocle on. I'm like, well, it's the whole, his spirit lives in you because Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father. That like we believe that he is temporally and, and like spatially there somehow, and yet he is also available to us all via his spirit. We talk about his presence being here. It's via, you know, like there's these weird things that are going on. And so I have lots of other questions that I continue to ruminate on as I think about this. It's confusing. It's difficult to grasp, and yet I think that it matters. And so if, because it's confusing and because it's difficult to grasp at times, and it's one of those things that w where if you try to get really neat and tidy answers, the proclivity is to then slide into kind of like either overemphasizing certain aspects of it and acting like you have it all together and it being a really thin kind of shallow argument or just ignoring it. And the church has done both at times as we do with lots of things. And yet there's a way in which I think that we should be able to embrace a complex and uh, profound idea and say we believe in it, that we, we hold this to be true, and yet we can't explain it. And I think that's okay, just so you know. We can ask questions about it. We can wrestle with it. We can admit that it's hard. We can admit that it's confusing. We don't have to, like, hide that aspect of it. And yet we can say, I, I think I believe in this. That's part of why we stand up and confess these things every Sunday, because some of these things are hard to believe. Some of these things we wrestle with. And when somebody goes, like, you really believe that? And you can say, like, I don't understand it all, but yes, I, I do. I do believe it all. I, I take great comfort, Tim Mackey talking about the, res, or the resurrection and the ascension uh, from the Bible podcast fame. And he was saying in this moment, somebody asked him on the there, like, do you, do you think you understand it? And he's like, I think I believe it. And they're like, you believe your understanding or you like believe the ascension? And he was like, both. Like, I think I believe it. But he's like, I don't know if I can say I understand it. And he's like, I'm okay with that. Dude's got a PhD takes really complex, you know, insane ideas that are dissertations for people that are other PhD students and puts them in five-minute cartoons that children can understand. Like, it's amazing. And he's like, I think I believe it. I'm not sure I understand it, though. And I think that's okay. So for that reason, we have oftentimes neglected this. We've neglected kind of the idea of what ascension is this 40 days that jesus walks the earth with his disciples with humanity and then goes and then there's all these like biblical and philosophical things that are happening there's theological like profundities that are all wrapped up into the story besides just the 40 days and i'm going to choose not to spend my time going into that because this sermon's going to be long enough as it is but if you have questions there are things here that are amazing and that are beautiful. This is Jesus fulfilling these ideas of what Adam was meant to be in the garden. And there's temple imagery and there is uh, heavenly imagery and garden imagery. All of this with Jesus going up to be where he is meant to be. And we misunderstand it sometimes too the same way we do with uh, death and the afterlife at moments. We misunderstand sometimes the ascension and what's going on in the same way we misunderstand like some of the uh, more nuanced aspects of the stories of the Old Testament because we don't have the same cosmology as the ancient Near Eastern people. 
we think of up, and that's why we think of, like, I imagine, and stick with me, uh, sci-fi nerds, you're going to love this, I guess, but, like, I imagine the end of uh, The Matrix when Neo hangs up the phone and then he just shoots up flying through the air. Like, that's always, like, what I've envisioned in my head of what's happening at Ascension because my concept and my understanding is a 21st century modern, I get space, I get ideas, and we've talked about this, that then what that has forced us to do, we have incorrectly moved unintentionally heaven further and further away from us here and now because we import our 21st century understanding into what they're trying to explain and so we've said well heaven's way out there over in that area doing something and that's Jesus somehow flew to that you know like maybe he's there in Arachnus or in a galaxy far far away choose your sci-fi choice of uh, story here but that's where we put him and we've made him distant in this moment. Where in their mind, like, up, all they're saying is he's in heaven now. And heaven for the Jewish and ancient Near Eastern people, the Hebrew people, would have been the space where God was present. That's what they're talking about when they talk about heaven. Paradise, the garden. And we understand that in some way when we die, we will go to heaven in this temporary space where we exist in front of God and there is this moment where we know we then will experience the new creation and the new heaven and the new earth where we'll be back here in all of its redeemed fullness. And it gets confusing. We start to need Christopher Nolan maybe to you know, throw another sci-fi reference in to help us understand what's really happening in this time-space continuum. It gets hard. And so we just ignore it. We walk away from it. But then there's another reason not just the theological, philosophical, physical, metaphysical aspects of ascension that we have trouble with, but I think there's also cultural and kind of like social reasons that this bothers us. So now, if you will, think of this with me, okay? So Mark and John, the gospel writers, don't mention the ascension. They give a little bit of a hint to it. They nod to it. Uh, the, Matthew doesn't talk about it at all. Luke Acts is the only one where we get this physical kind of like ascension. And when we do, and then Paul picks up on it, and so do the other New Testament writers. And they hold on to this. And we, you read it this morning in Ephesians. We heard it. We grasp it. Okay? But anytime they want to talk about the ascension, and they're going to reference it, part of what it is always connected to is the power and authority of Jesus. His rule and his reign. This is what they want us to understand. He was raised to be ruler over all. So as Jesus walked the earth, in the Gospels, they make very clear. The Jewish people, the Hebrew people, they were looking and longing for this priestly king. This is who the Messiah is meant to be. It's hearkening back to Melchizedek, to Adam, uh, in some ways what you know, Abraham could have been or should have been the priestly people, temple imagery, all of this, and they want this priestly king. And Jesus fulfills that. He's this prophet, priest, and king that walks the earth, and he's all three tied into one. In the ascension, what happens is there's this really profound thing, which he becomes that plus more, in that he becomes this cosmic priest, king, prophet that rules and reigns over all of creation, above all authority, power, names, above all identity, This is what Paul is claiming in Ephesians 1. And so he steps into this cosmic rule. Kyle said this a few weeks ago in a sermon. I thought it was beautiful that there is this way in which we talk about Jesus in all these different ways. And we all have these different aspects of Jesus that we really, really like. 
and we want Jesus. This was Kyle's words. I texted him. I was like, did you come up with that yourself? And he's like, I think so. And I was like, that was great. I loved it. And he said, we want to put all these different hats on Jesus. But what the New Testament wants us to understand and to grapple with is that Jesus does not wear different hats. He wears a crown because Jesus is king. And this is what the ascension doubles down on, is the rule and the reign, the power and the authority of Jesus Christ. Now, that makes most of us uncomfortable to some small degree, whether it's because he will ask something of us or because we have issues with authority and power. And it's not your fault. This issue with authority and power has been in the waters of where we live and exist as modern Western people since about the late 1700s. So not to bore you, but to move very quickly. There were these ideas as America is being formed in Europe that they begin to question for all of like human existence, what God, what divine being or source, what religion you followed, it didn't matter. Everyone understood that there was a hierarchy to life and that people ruled and reigned, that there were emperors, kings, rulers, all of this, and they were established and they were placed there by God. And in the same way, unfortunately, we use the same line of thinking to do really heinous things like uh, institute slavery and racism. And we say, it's, well, because this is the divine way. This is the way the created order exists. In the, in the late 1700s, early 1800s, people begin to wrestle with this. And they begin to challenge the notion of divine or like kind of this like implicit authoritarian rule. That there isn't this structure. There isn't this way in which everything's supposed to line up. And we begin to say, like, well, wait a minute. Like, where does power come from? Who gets to decide who has the power and who doesn't? This is a lot of what America is founded upon, is this notion, guys like John Locke, Adam Smith, that are going to begin to say that power resides in a collective group of people or in the individual. That we're kind of born these, like, blank slates and, and there's all of this, like, structure and there's all of this idea in which, like, society and culture and governments begin to play a role. And what we have been doing is just accepting this as norm when it doesn't necessarily have to be that way. That we can reject it. We can shed this. And then that kind of continues. You see it in America. This is democracy. Uh, th these ideas of divine right, you know, manifest destiny, westward expansion, all this gets tied up. This is who we are as a people, this idea that authority lies and exists like within us as a collective group of people, that there is no such thing as divine authority. And yet we would proclaim that we believe Jesus is king, and yet like deep in our bodies, we don't understand why, but there is a tension there for us because these are the waters we swim in. These, these are the places we find ourselves. Fast forward, uh, early 1900s, there's this guy named Foucault, there's some other Rousseau, uh, uh, different philosophers that are going to do some philosophizing. Uh, and, you know, that's not a real word, but we can use it anyways because it's funny and it's from a movie. So they do this thing. And what they're going to begin to say is they're going to begin to challenge the very notion idea of authority. And they're going to become obsessed with the ideas of power dynamics and power structures. And they're going to ultimately come down to the idea, uh, Nietzsche is famous for this and his will to power, but this idea is that like, you have the power. You, the individual, each of you in here are the source of authority and power, and it comes from you. And what you say and what you feel and what you see to be true and what you see to be right is what is ultimately right. 
I think any of you that have tried to have a discussion with someone that you disagree with in the last four years, if you are honest, maybe the last eight years, you know, go back a little further, but definitely in the last four, if you are honest, you will acknowledge that it is difficult to talk to someone because this is the way we all understand it. Now, I'm not just talking about because, like, we're going to throw shade at other people. You have to admit this about yourself, that most of what your arguments come from are not from reason, but from this sense and this idea that if I think it and feel it to be true, then it must be true. And then you use reason and logic to form arguments around this idea. And the other person's doing the same, which is why you can't have a conversation with them, because you're doing this. You're not using reason and logic in the way that you think you are. You're using it somewhat, some other way. Okay, so we naturally have rejected reason or not reason and logic, but authority and power and we get uncomfortable with it. And now, culturally speaking, we are obsessed with power dynamics and how we understand power and who has the power. And we've done one of two things. We've either embraced it and went after that power at all cost or we've attempted to completely reject it and say that like there should be no power, there should be no authority. Now as I'm saying all of this, you should feel some sense of like, wait, I, I, this makes sense to me. You maybe wouldn't have been able to name it, and maybe it's making you uncomfortable, and maybe you're thinking like, no, that's not true, that's not me. Well, here's the problem, fish don't know they're wet, okay? So you, you have to begin to understand that this is just the way it is. This is the way our mind thinks and functions. We don't like the idea of authority and power unless it is like us that gives it. And so we have rejected notions and ideas of the fact that we think that Jesus would rule and reign above all authority and power. We've removed power from Jesus. We've removed power from who God is. We don't like kingly language. We're Americans. We don't believe in kings and queens. We believe in democracy. And we want religion and we want following Jesus to function like a democracy. Well, if enough of us get together and vote on it and decide that this makes the most sense, then we can just change what we think and what we believe. If enough of us just kind of say like, yeah, this is probably the way it should be, then we can collectively go, well, then we just change it. That's okay. And yet the New Testament gives zero space for us to function that way. The New Testament is going to say, no, like Jesus is the one that rules and reigns above all authority and power. Your authority and power, my authority and power, it doesn't matter. And we reject all structures of any kind of way in which this gets passed down. And here's the thing. We should reject some of it. It has been abused and misused time and time again. And thanks be to God that there have been movements in the last 20 years that have highlighted this abuse of power, that have given us like an insight, that there have been movements 50, 60 years ago that show us how this power has been baked into systems and structures that have allowed certain people to remain oppressed. And thanks be to God that that is being revealed. And as we unearth it, that it's deeper and deeper than we realize in us, in the world and culture around us. Now, here's the thing, though. When we begin to see the ways in which these types of things have been abused, what I think remains true of the human experience is it is the things that are the most valuable and the most true that get the most abused and where the most hurt happens. Think of sexuality and, and sex in general. There is a reason why things like the Me Too movement 
have swept through our like, you know, zeitgeist, our culture so quickly. And that is because sex is something that is very intimate. And when it is abused and misused, it hurts really badly. Think about why your origin story and your family matters so much. It is because that is the space in which you are supposed to develop so much of who you are, your identity, your personality, your existence, your ability to understand like whether you're safe or not. And it is there where things matter the most and are the most intimate and are the most true that the most pain and the most wounding takes place. And our natural response is to want to deconstruct or to reject common notions and ideas of what that is and to say, well, obviously this has failed and we shouldn't like, participate in that anymore. We should reject that. We should like, tear it down. We should redo it. Scripture would argue that what you should do is that you should look at these moments, these spaces, these places, understand that there is great wounding there because there is great truth and there is great honesty, that there is value to these things, and that rejecting it does no good. So when you think about something with power and authority, to completely reject Christ of his power and his authority is to dismiss and to reject the very like, thing that makes us us as the church, as believers, as followers of Jesus. To reject it is to say, well, like that, you're cutting the very log, branch, whatever you want to say, like that you sit upon off to, to tear these things down. And yet that's what we so often want to do. We want to reject the very thing where the pain happened instead of going back to the pain, going back to the abuse and understanding that there is something really valuable and true here. And I'm talking about this and I'm also talking about your life, by the way, just so you know. Go back to it. Understand why it hurt so badly and understand that Jesus wants to redeem that. That he wants to bring more truth to it. He wants to bring healing to it. And I think that is true of an idea like him ruling and reigning above all authority and power. We are right to recognize that historically the church has drastically abused this. Like in extreme ways. And we should name that and lament it and move on. I don't want to just say move on to it like it didn't happen, but like we should name it and say, we want nothing to do with that. I say this all the time. There are so many moments in my life when I'm sitting with someone, whether it is like in person in IRL or like reading, hearing someone's story on the internet, hearing them talk and process something, and I hear them discuss and name things about Christianity and the church and Jesus, and I'm like, I reject that Jesus too. I reject that version of Christianity as well. Like, if that's the only thing we have to offer, be done with it. Move on. And so we are right to name these places. In the last 20 years, it's come to light more and more. There seems like a pastor that I'm aware of and that I respect to some degree is in the news at least once a year of, like, another guy that abused his power and his authority. And we should look at that and we should lament it. And yet we should not allow that to like, let us turn to cynicism and to reject this notion that there is something good and true and right, that we would submit our lives to the authority and rule and reign of Jesus. And yes, the church has used this language to uh, abuse, to control, to manipulate and yet what we have to understand is there is a way in which we have to give our lives to the king who sits above all that reigns and rules at the right hand of the father and that he is asking something of us. And when we don't, what happens is that we then become either extremely cynical, critical, 
kind of just, you know, jaded and walk away from it. Or the other thing that I think does oftentimes happen is we mimic some of these things in really unhelpful and kind of shallow ways. There's a shallow spirituality, a shallow sort of way in which we talk about and try to sort of hold on to these things. And it removes any kind of power from the witness that we as a people, as the church, as followers of Jesus are meant and are like in desperate need to carry with us. And this is what Paul's talking about in Ephesians 1. I've been talking about it the whole time if you haven't figured that out. There's this way in which what Paul is saying to this people in Ephesus is he is looking at them, and not looking at them, he's hearing of them, and he is saying, I've heard of the way that you follow Jesus. And my heart has been filled with thanksgiving. And he's just walked out of this amazing, like, 14 verses of praise. And he moves to this prayer for this people. And he knows that they're struggling, that they're going through things. And what he's saying is, I'm not going to pray for you a laundry list of, you know, I hope you get this, I hope you get that. There's lots of sermons out there and books on this that are like, see, this is why you're supposed to only pray these, like, huge, high, lofty theological prayers. I think there's some truth to that. Uh, and, but, you know, it's overstated. I think Jesus cares about really small details of your life, and you can ask him for those things. But above that, before that, I think we miss a way to pray that Paul demonstrates for us here, that he is not asking in this moment that these people would be given, you know, political clout, that they would be given a space in society where everyone would see them and, and be, like, magnanimously drawn to what Christ is doing, but that he is praying that they would understand in their wisdom and in their intellect the great things that Christ has already given to them, that Jesus has already provided for them. Their glorious inheritance, their calling from him, this thing from the past, this thing where they're going. He's saying, this has been given to you, and I pray that the Spirit would enlighten you, would open your eyes to all that you already have. He is not praying for them or thinking that there is some sort of second, you know, pouring out that, you know, you're kind of a half Christian until this happens. And then once you get that, like you kind of, there's no elevating here. He's saying all of this is already yours through the death and resurrection of Jesus. This calling is placed on each and every one of you as a human being, as a creation of God. And this promise of where you are going is available for all of you. And I pray that you would recognize that and see that and grasp hold of it, that your life is meant to be different, that you're meant to do things in a different kind of way, and that when things get difficult and faith seems to lack, that you would give yourself over to it. And he says, basically, I know that's not going to be possible all on your own. And that's okay. He says, I know you're not going to be able to do this by yourself. And that you're going to miss moments of this. And you're going to forget about your calling of who you are. And you're going to forget to remind yourself that this is who you're meant to be. And you're going to forget about what Christ has promised you and his glorious inheritance and his riches. And we do this because we think about our calling and we think about our inheritance. And we think about the power that Christ offers us in our modern 21st century affluent selves. We replace those things with like optimism and success and wealth. Instead of holding on to these like eternal things that God is talking about, that Paul is talking about, that God wants for us. He says, you're going to trade it out. You're going to do this. But you're promised something even as good as that. This calling, this future you're going to, you are given the power of the Spirit of God. The very power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. 
that power is going to live and animate in your being and in your body. And when all seems lost and all seems dead, when all seems dark and all seems like unable to continue, that very power of God will empower you in your witness towards the world watching. And it will move you closer towards what God intends for you to have. But he doesn't ever let us think that that's, you know, a nicer car, better house, the dream job we've always hoped for. He's arguing that this is moving us towards fully and more like honestly embracing the will of the Father to see the kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven. That that is the power that we are being given, that is given, like we have access to as the people of God. This is available for us, this power and this authority. And yet we walk away from it and shy away from realizing this. And I think what we do is we create a shallow and hollow Christianity when we don't embrace the power of God that resurrected Jesus from the dead, being the very power that lives and animates here among us. Or we become a really cynical group of people and just kind of frustrated by it all. Instead of embracing the hope and the beauty of the gospel and the joy that it brings for our lives here and now in the midst of struggle because of the way that power is abused. This cultural obsession with power rooted all the way back to either the like kind of bold, uh, uninhibited pursuit or the cynical kind of necessary desire to see all power structures destroyed has left us in some sense not wanting anything to do with all of this power. These options extend, you know, here or here, and yet the Christian is called to live somewhere differently in the middle, to be something to the world that is wanting and waiting and watching around us. And as we do this, Paul is saying that the Spirit of God will come and live among you, doing something, allowing you to be raised from the dead in many different ways, in little moments here and there. Because in the thing that we are either kind of shallowly, shallow, shallowly embracing or cynically rejecting, there's this thing that happens where what we're rejecting is that notion of power that is not biblical at all, that Christ wants nothing to do with. And so we've come full circle now and saying that this power that Christ intends for us to embrace in this power that Paul is talking about is never power of clout or political influence or kind of this, uh, you know, amazing sort of ability to uh, be involved and connected to everyone. The power is the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. So the power is always connected to the death and suffering of Jesus Christ. This wounded lamb is what we see riding in, that's sitting on the throne at the end of Scripture. The Jesus that ascends to heaven is the one that still bears the scars and the marks of his humiliating crucifixion. The people that he chooses to manifest himself to and to dwell among are still the ones that have no real influence. And yet he says, this is where my power dwells, is in this kind of way of thinking. And so instead of rejecting power, what we would be good to do is to redefine and rethink and re-understand power in scriptural terms. This does not mean that we're all meek and mild and, you know, like, like we still have compassion and we still have, or we still have conviction, but we do so with compassion, right? There's still these ways in which we need to understand that what we hold on to, this thing that we call power, 
is something that is meant to change us, to move us towards something, and to stand up and to say that we actually do really believe that Jesus is the answer. And we don't mean that offensively. We mean that in a way of like, this is the truth, it is beautiful. And here's why I think people reject all of this. In our rejection of power, we reject the church's very calling and sense to do the thing that it's supposed to do. And so people come and they experience a church that doesn't look any different than the world around it. They experience a way in which there is like, I don't know, you know, it's just, it's either hypocritical or hypercritical. And they're like, well, that's just everybody. I don't, I don't need to wake up early to come and do that. I don't need to mark a night of my week off to hang out with a bunch of people that probably, you know, I wouldn't normally hang out with anyways. So like why, like, why would I do this when this is just what everybody else is? There's nothing different going on here. And yet what Paul is saying is that there should be something profoundly different going on. Because the church is not just the church. It's not just a group of people or an organization or a social club. The church is intended to be the body of Christ. Which means it is intended to be the hands and feet and the space in which the very essence of this power and of who this Christ is dwells and lives and fills to the fullest. It is meant to be the way by which the world understands and knows who Jesus is. It's a high calling and a beautiful calling of what the church is supposed to be. Something that's worth fighting for. Something that's worth suffering through some muck and some mire for. Something that's worth giving ourselves to even though it doesn't have the best reputation at times. Is the body, the bride of Christ that is beautiful and strong and it is meant to be given to the world. This is what Jesus intends. This is how Jesus can say things in the Gospels like, you will do greater things once I leave. Jesus was limited on earth by his temporal space that he found himself in. And yet we, as his body, the church, the followers of Jesus, exist all over the world. And we are meant to be given to the world. Jesus intends that the church would be the center of what his redemptive act and what he is doing would be. Oftentimes we can think that the church is kind of over here and the world exists, but Jesus in the New Testament and Paul, as Eugene Peterson would say in his paraphrase of Ephesians, would say that the church is not peripheral to the world. The world is peripheral to the church. Jesus' life, his actions, what he is calling us to is meant to exist among us. And yet so many people reject it. And I think they have good reason to because we reject the very power that is meant to animate us and to live, us, live in us. We miss what Christ longs to do here in between individuals and in our own individual lives. We don't allow that power to do something to us. We ignore it, we reject it, and we live a life of just kind of going through the motions. And I think we fall into one of the two kind of twin evils. And yet Jesus is, or Paul is imploring with the Ephesians to see that Jesus longs for us to be different. That life in the midst of this, that resurrection as we kind of sit on this last Sunday of Eastertide before we move to Pentecost next Sunday. So we find ourselves in this space that it's like this is supposed to change us. Your life is meant to look different. And it should look different because you've experienced that grace and that power of Jesus yourself. There's a way in which, like, there's lots of things I love and I have lots of, you know, I get hyper-focused on things. 
I get really obsessed and I go deep, deep, deep down in holes and then I can talk to you about it and you're kind of like, oh, what, whatever, that's weird. But if you're a really charismatic person, you're a really great storyteller, I'll shout out Mia here because I dogged her on K-pop when I was talking about the same kind of idea one time. But here's the thing about Mia. Mia can tell a story in such a way that at the end you're like, I don't know, should I like K-pop? Or you will leave being like, K-pop's the dumbest thing I've ever heard of because she's got this way in which like, she's so passionate about it that you either like, have to be convicted by it and interested in it or you have to reject it and be like, no, that's not for me. There's a way in which you can talk about things that can captivate people. But here's the thing. Mia's convinced me that maybe K-pop is cool. But then I walk away and I don't do anything with it. And so I'm not now an evangelist for K-pop. But in my obsession and hyper-focused tendencies, if I were to really like experience it and it would change me, then I would be like Mia and all I would talk to any of you about is K-pop. I wouldn't be any different. Go down the long list of my hobbies and the things that I love. I will go on and on ad nauseum about how great it is. But that won't change you or change your opinion of it. You maybe will give ear to it or think slightly differently of it. But until you experience the thing yourself, until you have sat down and had pizza in its platonic form and had like what pizza is meant to be and you taste it and, and you get all the sensations and the flavors that are supposed to happen simultaneously and the crust is just the way it's supposed to be and there's a little bit of sour and there's a little bit of sweet and the cheese matches perfectly with the basil, until you've actually tasted that and experienced it, what I'm just saying sounds like crazy talk. Why would you spend 48 hours making pizza dough? That's stupid. No, it is not. It is amazing because once you experience it, you will be changed by it. Now it's just pizza. But here's the thing that the church is supposed to be. Once you taste and see that the Lord is good, you will be changed by it. And when we live as the church is meant to live, the world wanting and waiting around us can't help but taste and see that the Lord is good. And that his glory is here amongst us in the land of the living. And as we embrace the power of who God is, we are able to live into that calling to be that for the world around us. They have to experience it. And they can't experience it unless we, the church, live as we're meant to live. Embracing that power. Being animated by it. Living our lives sacrificially rejecting the norms and the ideas of the world around us and giving ourselves to the very hope and the joy of the resurrection. This is why ascension matters. This is why we are meant to give ourselves to it and that this is a theological, like, just amazing point, but I think it is also a practical one. Ascension matters practically because we get to be this and we need to be this. Not just mosaic, but the church, the church at large, universal, collective, needs to be this. To be a people that present the hope and the love and the joy of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. As the band comes up, we move to our time of communion. And as we come to the table week in and week out, we're always reminded of this sacrificial element of who Christ is. Somehow in the economy and the metaphysics of the kingdom and the gospel, this is what power looks like. And so as you reject the notions of power dynamics that have corrupted and abused and, and shaped the world in ways that we would long for it to not be, 
we reject that with you. And we say, yeah, that's not what the church is supposed to be. That is not what like, this is supposed to look like. Christ has come and offered a different kind of way. He came in human form, took on our frame, experienced the pains and the sufferings that we experience. He knows us well. And he longs to be connected to us. He knows our inability to be honest with ourselves. And he knows our inability to look deep into ourselves and recognize the ways in which we misunderstand this and that we don't see it all as God intended us to see it. To, to lack the confidence or the courage to be honest about our own shortcomings and failures, our own shame. And yet, he loves us still more than we dare hope. We dare imagine. Because this is what he presents as the answer. Is a God that would come and sacrifice himself, that would take on wrath, take on this shame that was not his to bear, and yet he bore it for us. Doing so in such a way that redefines what it means to be human, what it means to experience the structures of life in the world around us. That this is true power in the economy of the gospel. In the kingdom way of living, sacrifice the breaking of oneself, the pouring out of oneself so that others might know and experience the love of the Father. And in doing so, creating ways for that to happen. It's all in Jesus. And as he sits ascended at the right hand of the Father, he continues to invite us back to him again and again because of what he did. And so my invitation for you is to come and to receive the bread and the cup. Hold on to those elements. Take them back to your seat after the band plays the song, we'll uh, come back up and take together one body and one cup. But as you hold those elements, reflect on the goodness and the glory of who God is as he reigns and rules and is inviting you in to be empowered and indwelled by this life, this hope and goodness of the kingdom. This is a gift for us to be a gift to the world around us. And please understand that this is what the church is supposed to be. And I know it has not always been that. Not for me and not for you and not for a whole lot of people. But this is what it's meant to be. To give our lives to this Jesus that sits enthroned over all the cosmos. And we, the church, get to be its gift. And we embrace and understand that most by coming and receiving the gifts of God.